Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bridge Street Capital Partners is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital market transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raises, please send them your details via an email to invest at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention The Bip Show in your message. Now, on with the show. How are you now? Broadcasting from Sydney, Australia. You are listening to the all-new BIP Show, Season 4, Episode 14. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that all financial information in this podcast is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. Coincidentally, that is what I do. My name is James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. Uh, And Colgo uh, was going to join us, but unfortunately, he's still stuck in Davos. Uh, good luck getting back uh, from that one, Colgo. Uh, I actually had to skip Davos to be here, so that's uh, it's not too bad. The, this episode is being recorded in Sydney. It is the 3rd of June, 2022 AD. It is 11.34 in the AM here in Sydney. Now, I'm at Martin Place, um, and it's good to get back in back into the city and, uh, and see it still buzzing around and do some face-to-face interviews, um, which is going back to the old school, like when we started the podcast. I'm joined today by... Uh, Someone that I've developed somewhat of a financial crush on of late, just purely platonic, obviously. Um, I heard him speak at the Inside Network Symposium a couple of months ago. I requested a visit by um, his BDM, a fantastic uh, guy by the name of LJ, is an absolute gun, um, and ran us through the, the, the process that these guys have for, for the way that they come up with their decisions. They've performed amazingly well, especially recently, for, 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 for reasons that will become quite clear to you. And then I heard, uh, I heard this man speak again at their own summit that they held a few weeks ago, and I continue to be massively impressed. I am introducing Simon Mawini, CFA, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of what I'll call Contrarian Investors, Alan Gray. Simon, how are you now? Very well, thank you, James. Thanks for having me. Never heard anyone uh, speak so highly of LJ, but that's <laughs> he's, uh, No, he's, he's a good guy. He did, he, he did run through... Uh, the, the, the philosophy that you have and, and the process. And we want to get to the process of how you guys actually make the decisions that you make. Uh, first off, uh, I'm going to say, as, a, as an investment manager and as an investor myself, sort of not, not I don't want to say allocator because it sounds like a, uh, sound like a tool, but I am effectively someone who, who picks and chooses what goes into portfolios for them. And I'm super interested in, in Alan Gray. I'm going to say also that I'm, probably the last month, May, as a proportion of volatility and pain and stress and gray hairs that I've had, to coming out with portfolios effectively looking flat point to point. Have, have you ever seen anything like this in, in your time where it's, it's, it's been this much nonsense for, for not much effect at the end of the day? Um, this probably is more volatile than it has been for a long time. But I think the last 15 years we've been conditioned into 
extended bouts of low volatility. I think if you go back further in history, there have been lots of instances like uh, we see today. And then I think there's some added noise floating around the Australian market with you know, movements from industry super funds and institutional mandates being terminated here and there. And so there is quite a lot of movement around. It is a bit noisy. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen it before, um, but, but it, it's an opportunity more than anything else. Well, I want to circle back around to, to where you see the market heading in that. But first off, let's have a, a bit of a talk about Alan Gray, um, the firm, not the man, um, but I'm sure that he'll come up. Um, the philosophy of, of, the, of the fund here or of the, the company, what, um, what are the main principles that you, that, that you have? Uh, well, there's three things that we regularly cite as sort of defining us. Long-term, so long-term investing is one of them. Fundamental is the other and contrarian is the third. Not necessarily in those order, mm-hmm. in that order. But so long-term, we are long-term investors. We find it very, very hard to pick catalysts, one and two specifically time the onset of a particular catalyst. Uh, and so our average holding period is roughly five years. And we try and, if, you know, if, if the investment horizon is longer than five years, generally the IRRs don't stack up. So, um, but, but that seems to be longer term than most. Uh, that's where long term comes from. Yep. Fundamental, we are bottom up. Yep. Uh, it's, Do you want to run us through what, what, what bottom up actually means for some of the, some of the people out there? Sure. It, it, it would be the opposite of top-down, and top-down is more... <laughs> top-down top down would be more macro forecasting and trend analysis, and that's not what we do. Um, instead, we try and assess what a company is likely to earn through the cycle and go back to the underlying fundamentals and basics of what constitutes value. And, and you know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. And the value of any company is the present value of the future cash flows that that company will derive. Yeah. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's a growth company, a value company, whatever label you want to put, all companies are worth the future cash flows they'll generate. Some of those are far dated, some of them are near dated. Um, and so we put a lot of work, and this is this bottom up, a lot of work into trying to work, uh, assess and, and estimate the likely future cash flows of a company. And, and then discount those to today. And, and that is what principally is the driver of our intrinsic value assessment. So that's, that's your fundamental approach that you take as a bottom-up, yep. and it's contrarian? And so contrarian, the, the third part, you know, markets are not efficient, and it is hard to buy things that are a significant discount to intrinsic value unless there's a reasonable amount of bad news associated with those companies. Companies with really good news attached to them typically more than adequately factor in the clear runway that lies ahead. Uh, The market hates uncertainty, and and so normally companies that have uncertainty or they're a victim of of perhaps some company-specific bad news or have been involved in a deep cyclical downturn and no one can predict the outcome and the turn, they typically get oversold. And so it's in that area that we find it easiest to search for the greatest ideas. And those are the areas we find the greatest margin of safety. Now, let's go into the actual process of how you come up with the ideas. So, so you're LJ, and uh, I don't know why I was so enamoured with him. He's a, very, he's a very good representative of your company. He's good. And any, anyone out there with the chance to, um, to have a chat to him, if you're, uh, if you're managing a little bit of money, then 
give him a call because he does tell a good story and he's a, he's a genuine guy. Um, and he ran us through how your analysts actually make their calls and 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 how it gets nailed nailed to the wall effectively. Did you if you got a second just to run us through that? It's a fascinating way of going about it. Yeah, sure. And and for the record, I I think LJ is very good as well. <laughs> he's going to listen to this, and I'd hate to leave uh, him or anyone else with the wrong impression. But um, so ideas enter the portfolio in various ways. Um, it, it could be the product of a reasonably long period of research attached to a thesis, or it could be the catalyst for entering our portfolio or, or initiating the research idea. It could be unexpected bad news that happens on a given day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's often difficult to predict. Um, I'm trying to think of a good recent example. It, it'll probably usually, usually it's any stock the day after that I go into it. That's a guarantee. <laughs> sure as night follows day, well, my friend. Well, uh, we're Australian-focused, but snap, when it fell 43%, yep. we didn't own it before then, and you know it's outside our mandate. That might be a catalyst for initiating yep. the research um, Maybe something like Origin Energy the other day? Origin would be okay. a yeah. Yeah. yeah, excellent. Um, yeah. Amazing, and, I wasn't holding that. It's a real miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and what what's then happens is with this, there's nine analysts in our team. I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. And an analyst will basically attach responsibility to that company, if not already. Uh, we have a we have a whiteboard which is is up in our in, in the investment team area with everyone's name on it and, and two columns for two companies you can basically reserve yep. footprint for it. so those are the things that you're working on and it just it's a way of making sure that people aren't going to have ideas stolen from under their feet and I'll, I'll explain why that's important well I'll explain now people are remunerated based on their research ideas yep. So if they have a great idea only for someone else to effectively wipe it off their whiteboard and put it on someone else's, that's that's one way to upset the apple cart. And, you know, we're all humans, and so we have to get along nicely. Yeah. You've got a very sticky uh, analyst team, I believe, too. That's, uh, uh, we haven't lost anyone for a few years now. That's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Um, and, yeah, so the research effort is done by that analyst we call them a sponsor analyst and effectively that analyst lives and dies by the decisions attached to that company and uh, that company the research process will happen the company will be chosen to proceed or not by that analyst if they want to proceed they'll call effectively an investment committee meeting they'll send that out their research report out to the investment committee who will have at least a week to go through it and then we'll meet and then we'll spend the duration of the investment committee meeting which is typically an hour trying to beat the thesis to death and of course we've looked at the company uh, for the week in the lead up to uh, and obviously some people on the team will know the company quite well mm-hmm. previously perhaps a sponsor analyst of that company um, and so we take a reasonably academic approach to this a, a bit like if you if you can't disprove a thesis, then it must be true as opposed to trying to pump up the tires from the outset and, yep. and, and make this, you know, try and dress mutton and to, look, to look like lamb. That's, that's, my, that's usually the way that I do things. But the, yes, yeah, so, so, so the analyst... a little bit different, yeah. but yeah, I'm not, I'm not to criticise your way. But oh, no, my way's not. terrible. My way's terrible. Don't the, so, so the analyst defends the thesis to the, to the committee? Well, the analyst presents the thesis to okay. the committee, I yeah. would say, and the committee tries to break it. Yes, okay. Uh, and I think the best analysts are ones who don't present a thesis 
to the committee until they've tried to break it themselves. Yep. So it's already been tried to be broken. Uh, then more people try, and we all vote on whether we would buy or not buy the company, and ultimately the portfolio manager makes the decision. And, and we, we, we do really, as a bunch of contrarians, worry about consensus. So if all of us vote buy, you know, perhaps time for a cold shower, um, and, and the reverse, but typically when everyone thinks it's a good idea to buy, we, we, we try and put more work into the counter-argument and vice versa. Yeah, try and pick, pick your own thing apart, which is That's which right, is important yeah. for everyone to be able to do. It's easy to drink your own Kool-Aid, I find, sometimes as well. So, um, And this, uh, amazingly, during COVID, I found, I'm not sure if you had this, a similar sort of thing, when our investment committee at VFS went... Um, sort of disparate or, you know, we, we all scattered because of COVID. We had to work from home. It's, I found myself making some decisions and I, I, I had to pick up and actually pick up the phone to people or pick up a Teams or pick up a Zoom with someone else and said, I've got an idea, but if I go, I need to bounce this off someone. Did you find during COVID that that, that, that same sort of relationship was required? Um, well, we're constantly bouncing ideas off one another and, and I guess it all depends on how you entered COVID and, and we entered COVID with a portfolio that couldn't have been more wrongly footed than it actually was. <laughs> actually, yes. And so so for us the 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 portfolio implications post the onset of COVID was to what extent are these theses broken? Do we add more to or 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 are there better ideas we can see out there? So it was a mix, but yeah, these were def- they were definitely interesting times, um, and all remotely and lots of yeah. interaction. We did we did find that once once we got the um, the harmony of COVID life of being over video, we actually became a more our performance definitely improved um, because we were communicating more than we than we would usually do just being in the office, and it was it was a set sort of regimental three times a day going through things. And it was it just. It, uh, it did change. Um, it changed a lot for us. I'm not sure if you had the same sort of thing well, with the it's, relationship. It's funny because we have approached the whole research process quite in an in a individualistic way. We, we shy away from too much teamwork because that leads to groupthink and then, of course, you very heavily skewed towards the index. And yep. if you're on the index, I mean, that's the height of mediocrity for an active manager like us. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so, so it's a bit different. So ordinarily, we, we don't have three day, three times a day pulse checks and catch-ups. Yep. It's, yeah, people it's, be deep down in research for weeks at a time and then surface, for example. It's, um, that is an incredible thing to, to go through that, uh, about going into it. Now, it, 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 it works. I mean, the performance is there. Now, at the summit that, uh, that you held the lunch a couple of weeks ago, you, put, you started the presentation with your performance and the room sort of giggled and I think you said I don't know why you're laughing and we, 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 we were not laughing at you we we're laughing with you because when you've got results like this you absolutely start the presentation with, with results like that I think there was it was it was good that's what that's what we were chuckling at it was we, just we like absolutely always, you we do we always start these things with performance <laughs> yeah. they matter yeah. yeah and you did um, and obviously past performance is, is no sign of what's ahead in the past but I've got here that the Australian fund has put on 14.7 14.7% in the last year and 8.2% annualised since it was launched in 2006. That's that's pretty impressive, Simon, um, and hopefully that does continue. Would you like to speak to those numbers at all or just happy to, happy to let them speak for themselves? Yeah, um, 
I think the last year needs to be taken in the context of the past three is all I would say. Mm -hmm. And so they do sound very good over the last year and they're great. But uh, over the three years, they've been more modest. Mm. And I don't think we have earned the right to beat the chest and <laughs> swing from the treetops. That's, uh, that should always be the way I think it's, it is. Uh... It's uh, the the, the uh, it's it has a great way of bringing you back down to earth. I think when you start crying about it, so that's a, that's that's a very a very impressive response. Now uh, let's talk about an idea from the past that has worked out well. Um, if we can drill down to something that's actually worked and, and and how it's come together. So and then we want I want to talk about one that might not particularly be going so well either. Every single person has asked me to ask you about this stock, and we'll get to it in a second. <laughs> let's start, let's start with something that's glowed, and then we'll start with something that uh, that's not. Um. I, I think Metcash comes to mind. Yeah. It's um, everyone, for those who don't know what Metcash does, it's a wholesaler of food and grocery, mostly to IGAs, um, through which or into which almost everyone has stepped and thought, oh, my God, this is a hole. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a time when Metcash's share price, it was in 2015, fell to the low 80 cents, well below a dollar per share. And at that time, we had already owned the company in the lead up to that weakness. But in the, during that weakness, we did add quite significantly to our stake. And I think at, at the lows, we owned 15 or 16% of the company. Um, and it's done quite well. I mean, you have asked me to talk about one of the ones that have done well. It's, it's over $4 now. It's paid a, a, a lot in terms of dividends. It's done share buybacks, and it's done very well. And at no time during the last 10 or so years has Metcash burnt cash. It, it, it has generated reasonably significant amounts of free cash flow, and it was an example, I feel, of a company where the stock market's emotive response to IGAs drove uh, share price underperformance to, to a level which just made no sense. Mm -hmm. It's not a company that I look at in our portfolio and think, wow, that's a great company. I can sleep well at night. But so is so that's true for every company that we invest in. And uh, the, the real weakness in Metcash came when, you know, Woolworths and Coles were going through that extreme competitive tension period and Aldi mm -hmm. had recently reared its head and sort of everything was was going well for the retailers and there was an expectation that the independent retailers in Australia would die. Mm -hmm. and, and it's proven to be anything but the case and Metcash has gone on to do some good things and in fairness also be helped fortuitously by COVID as people have stayed in the suburbs more where independent retailers are yeah. more prolific. So that, and that was just a pure valuation of just, just on the simple cash flow metrics and trading at a cheap price to earnings multiple, I suppose. So the, yeah. The, just that basic meat and potatoes valuation. Metrics. Absolutely. Yeah. Each company lends itself to being looked at slightly differently. Uh, in, in Metcash's case, we thought that wholesale margins could be around 2% per annum. Yep. And we thought we had some view as to what the top line would be, even, in, even if they continue to lose some share. And they were held back by food deflation, which had gripped the entire sector. And, and of course, the opposite is happening at the moment. Yeah. But yeah, your regular meat and potatoes is exactly yeah. the approach. Now, you mentioned margins. Um, so 
I, I, I was talking at the end of last year saying that, saying that keep an eye on margins, keep an eye on margins as companies start to, to lose some operational expenses, supply chains going up, wages increasing, all of those things that squeeze away your margins. Do you still see that as being a risk to, to any companies that you've got or looking at with their margins getting squeezed? Yeah, I think it's a risk uh, across the board. Um, some companies have quite a lot of operating leverage to begin with. And yes. So if some of that... Some of those cost imposts can be passed on to the top line. It's not clear that their earnings will be too savagely impacted, but there will be companies and it already is sort of flowing through in some company results Mm -hmm. that are likely to be quite impacted. It's going to be a bumpy ride, I think, for corporate earnings. Yes, yes. Um, Now, everyone said, I've got to ask you about it, AMP. Um, one that one that you've held, um, it's as deep, deep value as you could possibly see um, at any time. And, and there's a point, there's a point at which even I have considered going, uh, having having to look at it and having a go at it. Um, the decision on AMP, you still own it, you still stand by it, and and you do. What do you see in the future for AMP? Um, yes, we still own it. Uh, the, the future is a bit cloudy, actually, which is probably one of the reasons why the share might be cheap today, but AMP is or has been a mistake for us. Um, the AMP we invested in or thought we invested in was very different to the AMP of today. A lot has changed. Some of it potentially foreseeable. I, I don't want to absolve myself of responsibility, but, but at least some of it was unforeseeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm talking about the colossal own goal of AMP Capital in the appointment of Bo Pari, um, the decision to sell the life business for cents in the dollar, yep. just to make the company look a little bit easier to understand. Um, so, yeah, so there have been a few things that have gone not quite as we would have thought. Um, but, but the AMP of today... Uh, it, there's a business with a huge amount of excess capital. Uh, it has a bank, AMP Bank, which has about $1.5 billion of net tangible assets. Uh, and there is this New Zealand business, which is reasonably constant earning, not, not going to move the dial too much. I think it makes about $40 million a year. And then there is that red-headed stepchild, wealth management that no one wants. Hmm. Um, no one wants wealth management anyone. The banks, the banks go but, out. But, but the nice <laughs> thing, if, if, we're not, if we're not wrong, not only do we get wealth management for free, we get paid to take wealth management. Yep. And it's not such a bad outcome, you know, something for nothing. Yep. Uh, but but I, I would acknowledge it's been it's been a brutal ride. That's um, that's, uh, that's that's this this it's you get the ups, you get the downs. That's just how it's just how it is when you have things in the in a fund. Uh, now let's stick to some happier news here. The, the outlook for what's uh, what you see going ahead, maybe for the for the rest of twenty two. If you can give listeners a few tidbits, mate, that'd be fantastic. And then I think we can wrap it up and go to lunch. <laughs> um, wow. I'm not used to giving short-term outlook, so the rest long, of 2022. Let's, let's, okay, let's go long-term. How far do you want to go out, Simon? Uh, yeah. Okay. So this, the stock market does not seem to be too expensive or too cheap. It, it seems to be somewhere between plus and minus 10% of fair value. Mm-hmm. Is what I would say, and I think when when it's that tight, uh, it's very difficult to call uh, the, the the next move. But 
there are some aspects of the stock market that seem ludicrously expensive and other aspects of the stock market that look cheap at face value, but whose earnings are most likely heavily inflated. And so just to put some uh, meat around those bones, uh, on the, you know, the expensive side of things, the things that people seem to be gravitating towards. I mean, I could mention three tech companies, but, but tech is very small in our market. I think yep. you know, things like Megaport, MyStech, and Xero, they, you know, they're priced for perfection and in some cases much more. Yep. And I, I think there's quite a lot of downside there. But no one cares, right, because they're tiny. And, and they don't care until they care. But yes, well, <laughs> you only care if you own a lot of those. Yeah. Um, then the healthcare companies look outrageously expensive, CSL, Resume and Cochlear, they all trade at mid-30s, even 40 times current earnings. Yes, Those earnings are forecast to grow 10 to 11 percent. And I'm sure your listeners know of Apple and Alphabet, you know, companies with global brand franchises that trade in the low 20 times earnings and are forecast to grow at similar, lots, at similar rates. So why is it that CSL commands a a premium. It's always possibly as well. So, so, <laughs> and then there's, there's our um, sort of bugbear companies like Domino's Pizza and IDP Education and things like that. But so they, and, and if you add all of those things up together, that's quite a large part of the market um, that seems very expensive. The banks, uh, it's not clear how they can get much better from here. They, they, they've gone from, in NAB's case, 0.8 times NTA to 1.8 times NTA. Um, they make very low double-digit return on tangible equity. It's quite competitive. There could be a credit cycle coming. Uh, so, and they're quite a big part of the market. And then, you know, the iron mine is the other massive part of the market. You know, they traded low multiples of earnings. And, but those earnings are very, very high, very high on the back of high iron prices. And, yeah, so that all sounds like doom and gloom, but there is a lot of other stuff that actually looks really cheap. Such as? Uh, such as uh, Illumina Limited, the energy sector, I think, is very cheap. Okay. Uh, it's one of our biggest exposures. Uh, it's not clear to me that... It, it seems to be priced uh, fairly if you assume that long-term oil prices will be $70 a barrel. But... At those prices, most of the world's energy production ex OPEC will either be loss making or on the mother of all hamster wheels running very fast just to stand still. Yep, okay. Um, and then, you know, some of the insurers could be cheap. Um, we have some gold exposure in our portfolio in Newcrest that I think is very cheap. Um, the, you know, fertilizer companies might be cheap. Uh, there's just a mix, and it's not it's not sector specific. There's just a lot of things. If you're an Australian investor, you know there's about eight companies if you can choose from that will give you exposure to the vast majority of the market. Mm -hmm. There's the banks, four banks, three iron ore miners, three healthcare companies, and Macquarie Bank, and then uh, you know Woolworths, and Coles, and Coles, West Farmers, and Davis. And and those are very expensive companies as well. We haven't yeah. spoken about the retail. They, they traded very high multiples of earnings. Yeah, even more worth seeing. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's at the point where I just sort of think it might be sort of basing for a bit of an entry on, on all worse myself. Not that. I, I just think its economic earnings are a fraction of its accounting earnings. Okay. Through cash flows, its cash 
flows are much lower than its accounting profits suggest. Now, finally, I did ask you at the symposium a few months ago, I did ask you a question of where you set your exit. And you, you, you mentioned your methodology of exiting um, a, a place because my exits are notoriously awful, almost as bad as my entries. Um, and, and, and you mentioned what your exit was, uh, your exit strategy for stocks was, but I didn't have a chance to write it down. So maybe if, if you could just sort of repeat it and explain it, that would be fantastic if it's okay. Um, so we, we exit when the company reaches our assessment of fair value, okay. intrinsic value. We don't try and time and excess and think that the market will overshoot. So we try and buy when there's a reasonable margin of safety below intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. And if it gets to intrinsic value, we sell. Okay. Um, and it's as simple as that. Yeah, that's, it, it did seem very simple. And that's, and that's a lesson for everyone not to try and overcomplicate things. Simon, we done? Wrap it up? I am if you want. I am. I am I'm, re- I'm ready. It's 12 o'clock. I can just hear the, I can hear the clock tower across the road. Um, Valley, uh, for us, uh, Simon Mawini, uh, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of Alan Gray. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're on iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook for some reason as well. Uh, the best short in the market right now, Simon, is going to be Facebook. Um, I can guarantee that, basically. Although I, I, James Whelan does not guarantee that. Um, the uh, Check us out on the website. Whelan Capital is where I keep all my stuff. Uh, and also Alan Gray, they've got a, a Twitter feed, uh, which has bits and pieces on it. They've also got a website that, uh, that's got all the details as well. Uh, Simon, how do people get access to your products? It's managed fund, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. Yeah, so via our website, is the first person or your trusted financial advisor, I suspect. Yeah, to go to go through it in that way. Now there is that's the local, that's the Australian fund. There is also an international fund we didn't get. Yeah, we've get got three funds, three Australian funds, the equity fund, the balance fund, and the stable fund. Yep. And then we also distribute Orbis's global equity fund. Okay. Um, but our website is is the path to all the details are uh, for that one as well. Talk to your financial advisor or financial planner uh, today to get access to those things that you need to have access to. And and I am begging you to please have an LIC or an ETF at some stage. Um, Would make my life a lot easier. (laughs) I need need the liquidity. (laughs) Well, Um, it's daily trading for the fund, right? Yes. It's no no less liquid. Um, It's just... Perhaps a little different. Just, just, I just like it to be sitting on portfolios and not in a separate sort of space. Yeah. That's just me because I'm, I'm just a lazy guy, so that's just it. But uh, keep me posted on those ones as well. But until then, uh, going through the managed fund uh, direction, M Funds, I believe, is is, uh, is the name of the place where you do it through your broker. Um, I helped set that up a thousand years ago. Basically. So that, anyway, there you go. Um, this show is produced by uh, Drunken Monkeys, and we will catch you next time. Thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.